Hey guys, welcome back to India Unchained, a weekly podcast on Indian history. This is your host Neeraj and along with me I have Nitish. So Nitish, I see you are all excited and energetic. What is it all about? Hey Neeraj, do you remember in the last episode we briefed our listeners about the revolt of 1857? And that was a great hit thanks to our supporters, our listeners. Then I thought that what do we do next? So I kept searching for the next big thing that happened in, in Indian history. And then I came to this topic. But before that, to our listeners, I Neeraj have been debating on this topic for quite a while. So we have decided to give you two separate narratives. The foundation of the Indian National Congress. We all know Indian National Congress, that is the INC, was founded in December 1885 by 72 political workers. But did you know it was the first organized expression of Indian nationalism on an all India scale? A.O. Hume, a retired English ICS officer, played a very important role in its formation. Now, to tell you my perspective, I will actually have to brief you about two major aspects. The first one is a myth. Yes, you heard it right. The myth of the safety wall. A.O. Hume and others started the Congress under the official direction, guidance and advice of Lord Differin, the Viceroy, to provide a safe, mild, peaceful and constitutional outlet or like I said, the safety valve. For the rising discontent among the masses, which was inevitably leading towards a popular and violent revolution. The core of this myth was that a violent revolution was on the cards at the time and was avoided only by the foundation of the Congress. Now, the liberals welcomed it, the radicals used it to prove the Congress has always been compromising and the extreme right used it to show that the Congress has been anti-national from the beginning. In his Young India, published in 1916, the extremist leader Lala Rajput Rai used the safety valve theory to attack the moderates in the Congress. Yes, you know, having discussed the theory at length and suggested that the Congress was a product of Lord Different's brain, he argued that the Congress was started with more with the objective of saving the British Empire from danger than that of willing, winning political liberty for India. The interests of British Empire were primary and those of India only secondary. He also added, you know, no one can say that the Congress has not been true to that ideal. And his conclusion was, so this is the genesis of the Congress and this is sufficient to condemn it in the eyes of the advanced nationalist. What happened after this, guys? More than a cent- quarter century later, R. Palmer, that's authoritative work, India Today, wrote that the Congress was brought into existence through direct governmental initiative and guidance and through a plan, yeah, a plan secretly prearranged with the Viceroy so that it, and by it here, I mean the government, okay, could use it as a weapon for safeguarding the British rule against the rising forces of unrest. Yes, it was an attempt to defeat or rather forestall a revolution. The Congress did of course in time become a nationalist body. The national character began to overshadow the loyalist character. And guys, 
we all know that it also became the vehicle of mass movements but the original sin of the manner of its birth left a permanent mark on its politics its twofold character as an institution which was created by the government and yet became the organizer of the anti imperialist movement ran right through its history it both fought and collaborated with imperialism it led the mass movements and when the masses moved moved towards the revolutionary path it betrayed the movement to imperialism the congress thus had two strands on one hand the strand of cooperation with imperialism against the menace of the mass movement on the other hand the strand of leadership of the masses in the national struggle historical proof of the safety valve theory was proved by the seven volumes of secret reports which hume claimed to have read in the summer of 1878 guys please note this and which convinced him to the existence of seething discontent and a vast conspiracy among the lower classes to violently overthrow the british rule i have been going on about the seven volumes again and again and by now you all might be wondering what are these seven volumes but guys before i unravel the mystery of these seven volumes let me briefly trace the history of its rise and growth to tell you it was first mentioned in william wedenburn's biography of ao hume published in 1913 and as a decisive proof of this lala lajpat rai provided a long quotation from hume's biography guys the following passage is quoted by all the subsequent authors and hence i felt it necessary to reproduce it here at length so here it goes i was shown wrote hume several large volumes containing a vast number of entries english abstracts or translations longer or shorter of vernacular reports of communication of one kind or another all arranged according to districts not identical with ours the number of these entries was enormous they were said at the time to be communications from 30000 different reporters yes you heard me right 30000 different reporters he mentions that he had the volumes in his possession only for a week and many of the entries reported conversations between men from the lowest classes and you can see all going to show that these poor men were provided with a sense of hopelessness hopelessness of the existing state of affairs that they were convinced that they would starve and die and that they wanted to do something and stand by each other and that something meant can you guess it guys yes that something meant violence a small number of educated classes at the time desperately perhaps unreasonably bitter against the government would join the movement assume here and there the lead give the outbreak cohesion and direct it as a national revolt now very soon these seven volumes whose character and origin were left undefined in lala lajpat rai's quotation started undergoing a metamorphosis to give you a brief about it in 1933 in gumuk nihal singh's hands they became government reports Andrews and Mukherjee transformed transformed them into several volumes of secret reports from the CID which came into Hume's possession in his official capacity 
Now, so deeply rooted had become the belief in Hume's volumes as official documents that in 1950s, a large number of historians and would-be historians devoted a great deal of time and also energy searching for them in the National Archives. But you also might be saying that only if the historians had applied a minimum of their historiographic sense to the question and looked at the professed evidence a bit more carefully, they would have not been taken for a ride. Three levels of historical evidence and logic were available to them even before the private papers of Ripon and Different became available. Now, I'll take you to the levels one by one. The first level pertains to the system under which the government of India functioned in the 1870s. Got it right? In the 1870s. To give you a little more brief on this, in 1878, Hume was the secretary to the Department of Revenue, Agriculture and Commerce. Now guys think, how could the secretary of these departments get access to the home department files or CID reports? Strange, right? Also, he was then in Shimla, while the home department files were kept in Delhi. They were not in Shimla. And from where would 30,000 reporters come? This is so strange because the intelligence departments could not have employed more than a few hundred persons at the time. And as Lala Lajpat Rai noted, if Congress was found out of the fear of an outbreak, why did human British wait for several, seven long years? Right? Seven long years human British waited for it. If these volumes were not government documents, then what were they? Now, the clue was there in Wedden Burns book and it was very easily available. This brings us to the second level of historical evidence. Historical evidence that was already available in Wedenburn. Religious sects and orders were headed by Gurus. Gurus, men of the highest quality who have purged themselves from earthly desires and fixed their desires on the highest good. And these religious leaders through their chelas or disciples are fully informed of all that goes under the surface and their influence is great in forming public opinion. Now it was with these gurus, writes Wedenburn, that Mr. Hume came in touch towards the end of Lord Lytton's Viceroyalty. These gurus approached Hume because Hume was a keen student of Eastern religions. But, but also they feared that the ominous unrest throughout the country would lead to a terrible outbreak. And it was only men like Hume who had access to the government and who could help avert the catastrophe. This, wrote Hume, is how the case was put to me. In other words, the evidence of the seven volumes was shown to Hume by gurus who had been sent reports by thousands of chelas. But why should Hume believe that these reports must necessarily be true, right? Because chelas were persons of special breed who did not belong to any particular sect or religion or rather you can say belong to all religions. Moreover, they were bound by vows and conditions over and above those of ordinary initiates of low grade. They were all initiates in some 
of the many branches of the secret knowledge and were all bound by vows they cannot practically break yeah to some father advanced seeker than themselves the leaders were of no sect and no religion but of all sect and all religions but why did hardly anyone in india know of this existence existence of these myriads of gurus and chelas it's simple because absolute secrecy was an essential feature in their lives they had communicated with hume only because they were anxious to avert the calamity is it beginning to connect now yeah and finally we come to the third level of historiography the level of profound belief and absolute fantasy yes we are talking about fantasy in a history podcast the full character of gurus and chelas was not still revealed by wedenburn for he was sheltering the reputation of his old friend you know as friendly biographers usually do the impression given by him was that these gurus and chelas were ordinary mortal men now this however was not the case because reconstructing the facts on the basis of some books of theosophy and the private papers of viceroy ripon and different we discover that these gurus were persons who because of their practice of peculiar eastern religious thought were supposed to possess supernatural occult powers you know they could communicate and direct from thousands of miles enter any place go anywhere sit anywhere unseen and direct men's thoughts and opinions without they are being aware of it strange right spooky i think now hume tried to play a similar role with different but here more hesitatingly like not sharing with him the information that his advisers were astral occult figures so that even many historians have assumed that these advisers were his fellow congress leaders now only once did he reveal his source in 1887 when different angrily pressed him through which he claimed to have gained access to the viceroy secret letter to the secretary of state pressed to the wall Hume told his copies of the letter had been obtained by his friends through occult methods or through you can say medium of supernatural photography and when Dufresne showed him the original letter proving that the copy was false Hume had no answer Hume now was worried that he could offer no visible or direct proof of his knowledge or connections he also told the viceroy that he was getting gradually very angry and disgusted because he was not able to get this vouching for directly none of the advanced initiates under whose advice and guidance he was working would publicly stand by me so that most europeans in india look upon me either as a lunatic or a liar and hence he informed the viceroy while he decided to continue the political work he decided to drop all the references to my friends thus it turns out that the seven volumes which hume saw were prepared by mahatmas and gurus and his friends and advisers were these occult figures and not congressmen now further proof offered for the safety wall theory was based on wc bonaji's statement in 1898 in indian politics that the congress as it was originally started and as it has been carried on is in reality the work of the leadership of different and eva he stated that 
Hume had in 1884 thought of bringing together leading political Indians once a year to discuss social matters and did not desire that politics should be part of their discussion but Dufresne asked Hume to do the exact opposite and start a body to discuss politics so that the government could keep itself informed of Indian opinion such a body could also perform the functions of which her majesty's opposition did in england now hold on to this thought you'll need it later from the end of may 1885 different had grown cool to hume and began to keep him at an arm's length from 1886 onwards he also began to attack the bengali babus and the maratha brahmins for being inspired by questionable motives and for wanting to start an irish type revolutionary agitation in india and during may to june 1886 he was describing hume as cleverish a little cracked excessively vain and absolutely indifferent to truth that means his mainly his main fault being that he was one of the chief stimulants of the indian home rule movement now i know guys this is a lot to take in so to conclude my perspective it is high time that the safety wall theory of the genesis of the congress was confined to the care of the mahatmas from whom perhaps it originated that's a great narrative nitish allow me to share mine and i'd like to call this the reality of the foundation of the indian national congress now as you guys heard nitish say that the congress was founded in the year 1885 this was not a sudden or an historical accident it was a culmination of a process of political awakening in the 1860s 70s and it took a major leap in the late 70s and early 80s as this political activity gathered force the prospects of disloyalty sedition and irish type agitations began to haunt the government the indian nationalist demands of those years were as follows there should be no reduction of import duties on textile imports second no expansion in afghan or burma third the right to bear arms by indians fourth freedom of the press fifth reduction of military expenditure sixth higher expenditure by the government on famine relief seventh indianization of the civil services eighth the right of indians to join the semi military volunteer corps ninth the rights of indian judges to try europeans in criminal cases 10th last but not the least the appeal to british voters to vote for a party which would listen to the indians these conditions and demands look rather mild right but the colonial regime would not also concede to these demands because then they would that undermine its hegemony over the colonial people now the more younger radical nationalists 
and intellectuals entered politics during these years. They established new associations because the old ones had somewhat become narrowly conceived. Just to give you some examples, the British Indian Association of Bengal had increasingly identified itself with the interests of the Zamindars and had thus lost its anti-British edge. Young nationalists like Surendranath Banerjee and Anand Mohan Bose from Bengal founded the Indian Association in 1876. From Madras, youth like M. Charyar, G. Subramaniam Ayer, P. Anand Charlu and others formed the Madras Mahajan Sabha in 1884. Even in Bombay, that is now Mumbai, more intellectuals like K.T. Telang and Firoz Shah Mehta broke away from older leaders like Dada Bhai Framji and Dinshaw Petit. Newspapers were showcasing a new political life in the country and dominated the Indian scene till 1918. Papers like the Hindu, Tribune, Bengali, Maharata and Kesari and the likes of these papers set the foundations for new political beginnings in the country. In 1885, of course, the need and the necessity for an all India political organization became clear and the INC, that is the Indian National Congress, was founded. Now, Indians had now gained a fair bit of experience in organizing agitations against the British during the years 1875 to 1885. The Indians used this experience and compelled the British government to contribute toward the second Afghanistan war, which was more of like the adventure of Lord Lytton. The government then tried to control the Indian press through the Vernacular Press Act, against which the Indian press had waged a major campaign. After successful agitation against the government, the Indians then realized their mistake and were quick to draw the political lessons of 1875. They had failed because of lack of coordination on an all India basis. The Indians went further ahead to raise a national fund which would be used to promote political agitation not only in the country that is India but also in England. It thus becomes clear that the foundation of the INC was the culmination of the various political work of the previous years. The INC founders took to task their first objective to bring together the Indian masses and to promote the process of creating the identity of the Indian people. Various foreign colonial powers had previously expressed and even asserted that the Indian people could not be freed and were not at all a nation. They were but mere geographical representations. The Indian leaders did not deny this but acknowledged it. More importantly, as leaders like Tilak and Surendranath and others fondly said 
India is a nation in the making. Promotion of na nation unity and nationalism was a major objective of the Congress and in the further years its major achievement as well. In order to promote nation unity to every part of the country, it was decided to rotate the Congress sessions among different parts of the country. Now, modern politics was rather new to India. Popular participation, agitations, dharnas and mobilization of people seemed very new to the public. The notion that political activities are a privilege of a few and not a domain for everyone to participate was still dominating in the minds of the people. As time passed, the INC realized without mass movement, it would be impossible to make the British budge. Hence, they first started with training, organizing and making the educated and intellectual minds determined of change and action. They shifted their primary focus from redressal of short-term grievances to long-term organized and sustained political activity. Here is an instance that displayed this shift. In 1891, the young and impatient 26-year-old Gokhale was furiated when the government sent a two-line reply to a carefully curated prepared memorial by the Pune Sarvajanik Sabha. Justice Ranade, who was also known as a political sage, had replied to Gokhale, You don't realize our place in history of our country. These memorials are nominally addressed to the government, but in reality they are addressed to the people, so that they learn how to think in these matters. This work must be done for many years without expecting any other result because politics of this kind is altogether new in this land. Examples and instances like these made the leaders realize that mass movements can be successful only if they are organized in the right fashion and these movements needed to be headquartered by some place and by someone. The leaders also had to be unified, must share a collective identification, evolve into a common outlook, a new perspective, sense of purpose and even common feelings. The early nationalist leaders based their politics on the doctrine of sovereignty of the people or to simply put it as Dadabai Nauroji did. The kings are made for the people, not peoples for the kings. Since inception, the Congress was organized as a parliament. In fact, the word Congress was borrowed from the North American history connoting an assembly of people. Now, some people believe that the colonial and authoritarian state made the parliamentary democracy in India. But the entire credit is to be handed to the Indian National Congress. We need to put ourselves into the shoes of the nationalist leaders to understand or 
rather to have an experience as to what their situation was back in the 1870s and 80s the leaders did not have a ready made solution to an anti colonial ideology they played a dual role of learners and teachers simultaneously and had to develop an ideology on the basis of reality and own practice the fight was first against their own mindset and not against colonialism they had to fight to find answers to the ideological struggle the questions that they asked themselves were is britain ruling india for its benefit then what benefit are they drawing from it are the rulers and the ruled in this country in harmony is the fight against the british democracy bureaucracy or the british government are the indian people capable of fighting the british even if they are how is the war to be waged of course there were mistakes made assumptions assumed in the initial days but it was no misfortune sometimes it is required to fail to get back even stronger india today is fortunate that their leaders back then did not have a ready made answer or a formula to beat the british because such formulae are usually lifeless and poor guides to action to sum up the inc objectives the basic objective was to lay the foundation of a secular and democratic nationalist movement to bring in political mindset among the public to form a headquarters and a leadership group and to develop and propagate anti colonial nationalist ideology history always judges people based on their achievements and outcomes the role of the inc in achieving the objectives was substantial and hence no historian in the world will ever deny that now let's go back to nitish's narrative he explained to us the role that ao hume played in the indian politics and in the foundation of the indian national congress let me address the elephant in the room why did the congress choose ao hume to be their chief organizer let me explain courageous and committed people like dadabai naroji justice ranade firoz shah mehta g subramanya ayer and surendranath banerji cooperated with hume because they did not want to arouse official hostility at such an early stage of their work if hume and other english liberals hoped to use congress as a safety valve then the congress leaders hoped to use hume as a lightning conductor and the later developments show it was the congress's hopes that were fulfilled so guys we have given you two different narratives of the foundation of the indian national congress now which version do you prefer more it's all up to you because at the end everything is connected but do let us know which version do you prefer by sending us a voice message and the link is in the description below
Thank you guys for listening in to this episode. If you like this episode, do share it with your network. We hope to see you next week with some more interesting facts and stories. Until then, goodbye.